0: Hey, everyone, and welcome to On Trial, the podcast where we explore how to build your practice, trial tactics, and what can make and break your case. We're your hosts. I'm Matt Heimlich. I'm John Rizvold. And today, I'm really excited to talk to John about this case. Um, John recently achieved a, a a fairly remarkable settlement under the circumstances for a client of his, um, especially considering COVID and everything else that's going on right now. And the, one of the reasons I'm really excited to talk with him about this is Like I tried to explain with uh, the case I talked about last time, everyone has a case like this on their dockets. You know, everyone has a case where the insurance doesn't match up with the injuries, and our job as lawyers is try to achieve the best recovery possible for our clients, and what John did is really remarkable, and he created opportunities where there may not have been one before he got involved. And so that's why I'm really excited to talk with you about this. John, why don't you give us, you know, like the uh, 30,000 foot overview of the case, what we're dealing with. Sure. So I had a client,
1: young woman, she's driving home from her job at the hospital. She's an x-ray tech. Uh, She's on I-80 down near Joliet and she's going to pick up her daughter and she was rear-ended by a drunk driver. Um, She ends up with a mild traumatic brain injury and some serious hip pain. Um, and over the course of time, her hip pain worsens, and um, you know throughout the case, after her deposition but before uh, experts, she ends up having a a labral tear repair surgery. She tore her labrum in her right hip um, and ended up having it repaired. The defense um, was all over the place. Um, it was initially the insurance company offered us thirty-eight thousand dollars on a hundred thousand dollar policy. For a client who had been rear-ended by a drunk driver at high speed, I mean like 60, 70 miles an hour, um, and who had a, a well-documented brain injury and a well-documented uh, right hip labral tear, and our, my medical was you know north of 175, and the best they were into was 38, and they just kept coming up with defenses. So initially, the defense was that a mystery vehicle pushed this drunk driver into my client at nine at night on the highway on an empty highway. And then it became, uh, he wasn't drunk. And then it became, well, yeah, he was, but my client slowed down too fast and so on and so forth. And then eventually it became a causation argument of, you know, we're going to hire a biomechanical expert. We're going to hire this expert and that expert to say that the hip's not related. Um, At the end of the day, what we did is just sort of methodically work through the case um, and set them up for uh, essentially bad faith. And we got to a point where the case was set for trial in Will County this year in September. It was going to be the first jury trial uh, in the COVID era in Will County. And we settled it uh, about a week before at mediation for three over three times the insurance policy limits.
0: Yeah, it's just a great result. Um, but I re- wanna back up to the beginning or maybe even before the beginning. You know, When a case like this comes into your office, You know, when it's clear from speaking with the client that A, this is a liability case and B, the injuries are big, but the insurance is small, you know, what are you thinking? What are you doing to try to make sure that you can present this case uh, in the best way to the insurance company?
1: I think it's really just about giving them the opportunity to recognize that there's a reasonable likelihood that you're going to get an excess verdict. So let me give you an example. If you've got a rear ender and the medical's 10 grand on a $100,000 policy, there's not a reasonable likelihood that you're going to get an excess verdict. But if you've got a case like mine where you've got, you know, it was 80 in medical when I made my demand. And then eventually she had her surgery and it went up to 175. And the best they're going to give you is 38. Well, there's a reasonable likelihood that I can make up that $20,000 gap so there's a reasonable likelihood that there's going to be an excess verdict. And at that point, the insurance company under Illinois law has an obligation to settle the case within the policy limits. So they don't expose their insured, the at-fault driver, to liability outside the, the coverage of the policy. And in this case, because they did that, not only did the insurance company pay way beyond the policy, but their guy had to go out of pocket himself. He had to dig into his pocket and write a check uh, to my client. Out of his own bank account because his insurance company screwed up i'm sure that's your client's favorite
0: part of the settlement
1: yeah we're um, still waiting on a couple of checks so it's <laughs> not uh not the, the easiest thing to collect but um you know he's on the hook for it
0: um let me ask you this because your particular case it wasn't just a liability case it was a aggravated liability case because you're dealing with a drunk driver how does the fact that the defendant was intoxicated play into all this?
1: Um, it played into a a lot of the leverage I was able to create. So, you know, I I can kind of lay out the timeline, and I think it's probably easier to lay out the timeline of how um, the demands and the motion practice went. So I made a demand pre-suit for the policy, and I've said it a couple times. They offered me 38. So I made a second demand, a 14-day time-limited demand. It said at 5 p.m. this demand will expire that went ignored. So – Immediately after that expires, I file suit. I uh, make no more demands. We do party depths. I get the defendant to admit that he was excessively intoxicated. We continue on uh, towards F2s. And I made uh, another demand after the defendant's step And I said, um, you know, it's clear that this is aggravated liability. It's clear that punitive damages are warranted. Settle the case now for the policy, or we're going to file a motion for punitive damages, which In Illinois, in a drunk driving case, punitive damages are a given. They're they're automatic. You don't um, really have to do much to get them. With aggravated liability, what uh, you can do is create leverage with the opportunity for punitive damages. So I did that. And then going into uh, the medical testimony, the treating physician testimony, I made uh, another demand. And what it said was essentially... Um, look, you have one more opportunity to settle this case for the policy. If I have to go and depose these surgeons and spend money and spend time and hire experts, then we will not settle this for the policy. We're going to settle it, you know, by verdict. We're not, we're going to go to trial. We're going to get an excess verdict and we're done. And uh, the response from the defense lawyer was, I want to take these F2. uh, I want to take the surgeon's depositions. We're not going to settle. Okay. Um, And so the surgeons gave us predictably very good causation testimony. And following that, I did um, what, you know, a lot of people are starting to call sort of a running with the bulls demand based on the the book by Nick and Courtney Rowley. But essentially it's a time-limited demand in excess of the policy. Illinois has some really good but untested bad faith case law. We don't have a great insurance code section that allows for bad faith. It's section 155 and it's sort of toothless in a sense, because it only allows you to get either the difference between the the policy and the excess. So if it's a $100,000 policy and you get 110, you can only seek the 10 or $60,000 in punitive. So the fact that the punitives are capped in the 155 claim, the, the bad faith claim, makes it more difficult to pursue. But in this case, um, you know, because I knew at the time of trial the medical bills were going to be over a couple hundred grand or close, and they ended up at 175. I knew that if I walked into trial and I said, "Just give me the medical," then I was going to be in a, in a position where I'm going to get an excess verdict. And so what I did was just make a demand uh, to the insurance company and told them, uh, you know, I've you know, I've uh, expressed to my client your your offer. And we reject it. And we're going to go to trial. This is your final opportunity to settle the case. um, And, you know, this is our time limited demand. We will settle the case for X dollars. And it was several hundred thousand dollars. It it may have been uh, even a seven-figure demand. It was was a preposterous demand. But the idea is to create chaos. You're just throwing a grenade into their camp and and watching them sort of freak out a little bit. And they did. And it was great.
0: So let's say, you know, you do get, an excess verdict, um, and you're trying to you know prove the bad faith case against the insurance company, what kinds of things are you trying to do? I know you talked a little bit about the law in Illinois, about the standards, but what? How, walk us through that process for you. Sure. So setting up bad faith for me is, is super simple. Um,
1: show the insurance company all of your cards right off the bat. Uh, if you have a case that you know you can win because liability is great and you've got solid damages, show them your cards, put all your cards on the table and say, look, this is how we beat you. Pay me the policy. Honestly, nine times out of 10, they're going to pay you the policy. One time out of 10, they're going to screw around and they're not going to. Um, and so you can take that case and give them a second opportunity, but make sure that these demands are time limited. So you make your initial 30, 30 day, we call it an Olympia Fields demand because Olympia Fields is the big Illinois case about bad faith, and if you don't settle within the policy, there's bad faith, et cetera. So you make your Olympia Fields demand, give it thirty days if it expires, or they give you a crappy offer, which is a rejection of your demand. Don't even don't even negotiate. You just make a second demand that outlines all the bad faith case law in Illinois. And again, I'm happy to put these in show notes. I'll share my demands. You want to email me, I'll send you copies of demands. I'll send you the copy of the demand in this case um, that got us where we got. But that's that's step two, is sending this second bad faith demand. It'll expire, they'll ignore it. They're not going to pay you because they're obstinate. And then file suit and ignore them. And don't accept any offers. The hardest part about this, truthfully, is getting the client on board. Getting the client to understand that you're going to get paid. It's going to take a long time, but there's a really, really high likelihood that when we try your case, there'll be an excess verdict. And so you need to get your client to understand that taking short money, even though it's the policy, is the bad decision. And that's, in my opinion, the harder part of these cases. But setting up the insurance company is a really straightforward, methodical process of allowing them to continue to blow deadlines. That's, that's really all it is. Um, the Illinois case law is really, really clear that as soon as they know that there's a reasonable opportunity to settle within the policy limits, they have to take it. Um, if, if there's any risk, and the case is Haddock versus Valor Insurance, it's a 2001 case, and it says, the insured becomes concerned with the personal liability once a claim arises in which there is a reasonable probability that the insured will be found liable for an excess judgment. So at the point in time where the defendant himself and the insurance company know that there's a likelihood a reasonable probability which isn't even that's not even preponderance a reasonable probability is less than 50 percent that there's going to be an excess verdict then they have to tender if they don't tender the policy then they're on the hook and the policy's open and you'll hear that phrase a lot you don't hear it a lot in illinois you'll hear it a lot in california if you spend any time around any california trial lawyers and if anybody from California's listening, I know your procedures are a lot different for for popping the lid and opening a policy, and it's a newer thing here in Illinois. There aren't a lot of people that are getting excess verdicts or settlements, at least that I know of, and that are that are popping open policies. But if you follow the steps, and they're they're very very simple, make a demand, ignore any settlement offer below the limits, and don't negotiate. Make a second demand let it expire and you cannot give extensions let it expire and then be fearless and go litigate the case file it litigate it take it all the way to the brink and you will start getting offers and that's what happened here so what happened was we went from a thirty-eight thousand dollar offer pre-suit to i told them one last chance to offer me the policy and they said no i made my pie in the sky demand And they sent me a check for $99,000 out of the $100,000 policy. And so this is when it gets really good. There are a whole list. If you look at Section 154 of the insurance code in Illinois, there's a whole list of improper claims practices. And the, the list goes on and on and on. But it's things like unreasonably low offers or coercive attempts to settle. So I, I just start making lists, right? Which one of these did they violate? Check, 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 check. Keep it as a checklist. So here I've got a check for $99,000 of $100,000. That's an attempt to coerce settlement. That's an improper claims practice. So I I mean, I still have the check. I It's sitting in my desk. And uh, someday it'll go in a frame because I think it's fantastic. But that's an attempt to try to get me to settle short. And so you have to ignore those things and be fearless and continue to press on towards trial.
0: I mean, like you said, easy, you know, to, to say much, much harder to do. Um, And, you know, you talked about the difficulty in getting your client to get on board with a strategy like this. What did you do in this case to convince this client that this was the best option for her? In this particular case,
1: because it was a drunk driving case, my client was pissed. Like she was just furious and she wanted to just lay waste fire and brimstone style to everyone. Like she wanted to take the guy's house and his retirement accounts and everything you could find. And so it wasn't hard to get her on board. Now I have other cases on my docket. Um, one of them in with you know, one of them similar. It's a rear ender with a cervical fusion where state farm did a very similar thing, um, to the insurance company in this case that I am not allowed to name. Um, so in that case what i did with the client was i sat down with her and i sat down with her husband and i explained to them every single risk of not accepting the policy i showed them exactly how much their medical bills were i showed them comps. Uh, you know i got on to our jury verdict reporter in illinois and i showed them similar cases in this county dupage county in dupage county for similar injuries. And I showed them not just the ones that I thought were great, like the ones I'd send to an insurance company. I showed them the NGs. Look, you can get a not guilty. And then I put in front of them a piece of paper that says, I, client, hereby waive my right to settle the case and agree to try this case. It's just a, you know, a form where they essentially waive their right to uh, settle it and agree to try. And I said, sleep on it and let me know. And they came back and they said, we don't think it's fair that You know, we're in this situation. We don't think it's fair. We have 250 grand in bills, and they didn't just give us the policy two years ago. See, it gets easier because the insurance companies go out of their way to screw people. Like a lot of these auto cases don't come to us, or at least don't come to me the day after a crash. They come to me from another lawyer who doesn't want to file it, doesn't want to litigate it, is one. Or it comes to me, uh, you know, in the middle of uh, some treatment. Or it comes to me after somebody's tried to sell it themselves and has been screwed by the insurance company. And in all those instances, there are opportunities to set up the insurance for this sort of thing where they're, they're sort of jammed. They're in, they're back into a corner.
0: And, you know, talk about some of the exemplary type remedies you get. You touched on it earlier that Illinois is kind of limited in that regard. Uh, But talk about what kind of benefits outside of, you know, things you've already mentioned that, you can achieve through bad faith? Sure. Well,
1: if you can, if you can settle it before trial for greater than the policy, then you don't have to deal with any of the assignment of the verdict, assignment of the excess verdict issues that you'll deal with after a trial. And I can explain those later, but I mean, the, the best remedy in my opinion is to be in one of two situations to be in a situation where the insurance company is offering you more money than the policy, significantly more than the policy, so that it makes sense to settle the case, which is what happened here. Or in the alternative, you have an insurance company where you know for certain they will pay the excess verdict. And there are some of those, and I'll name them, State Farm, Allstate, Geico, they will pay excess verdicts. What you need to find is I don't know what they call them in other states. It's basically just a letter that they send to their insured that says, chill out, we'll cover any excess, don't worry about it. That's dis- that's discoverable. Judges will give you that. Go look for it and find it um, and make sure that you're covered.
0: You're absolutely right. We've had that in a couple cases too. That we found that out at the last minute that those letters are going out.
1: And you know what? Honestly, um, I have a lot of friends in the defense bar. I came from the defense bar um, be friendly to the defense lawyers. They are just as hamstrung by their carriers as we are. And I'll tell you what, there are times where I've gone and had a cocktail or a cup of coffee with a defense lawyer and they've said to me straight up, we're going to cover the excess. Okay, well then let's go, right? You, you need to be able to have good, honest, friendly conversations with opposing counsel, not in every instance, because not everybody's a nice person. But in most instances, you need to be able to do that
0: because it's to the benefit of your clients, and you can create opportunities. One thing I did want to touch on is: I know this case settled in mediation immediately before trial. How on earth did you get the plaintiff to agree to pay out money himself in mediation? I mean, that's just—I'm sure your client really genuinely appreciated that part of the settlement. So, how did that occur? Um,
1: it actually was the end of the day at the mediation. We were about to leave. We were about to walk because they had offered us one hundred nineteen thousand on a hundred thousand dollar policy. We said no. We got to a point where they were at two ninety nine, and I said, "You know, guys, this is you're you're not being realistic. Get us over three hundred, and maybe my client will consider it." And what they came back with was. We're, we're not going to pay another dime. The insurance company is not going to pay another dime. Would you be interested in, in defendant paying something? And he's willing to pay a thousand. And I said to my client, look, this is, this is a good deal. This is going to put, you know, $200,000 in your pocket, essentially tax free, more or less 180 grand in your pocket, tax free after fees and costs and everything else. Um, you know, that can do a lot for you. You're a single mom. That can do a lot for you. Um, what do you want? And she said, I want I want him to have to pay more. And so I told him, look, it's he's got to pay three grand instead of one. And he's not a, a person of means. He's, a, he's uh, got very little money. So, um, you know, she wanted to send a message to him. This was his second DUI. He was almost four times the legal limit. Uh, he had had 12 beers and four shots in a matter of three hours before he got on the highway. And so she wanted him to, to face some sort of consequences for the serious catastrophic injuries he caused. And so that's that's how we got him into that position.
0: That's just remarkable, remarkable achievement. Um, and I'm sure, you know, like I said, because clients always want that. They want the other person... Who committed the wrong to know the a, the extent of their injury and b how much it hurt them and they want you know some sort of justice from them not just the insurance company because they know it's the insurance company that handles everything you know they may never speak to the defendant they may never meet the defendant again and so I I think that you know that could bring an amount of closure almost more than you know the rest of the money could
1: and that's what it did here a lot of it was was closure for her. She felt justified. She felt like she got to have her day in court more or less because he, by paying a significant amount of money to him, um, was able to essentially admit fault.
0: Yeah, let's, let's talk about what happens in the bad faith context. Let's say I use the John Rysvold, you know, method that you just went through for setting someone up for bad faith. And then I go out there, I try my case, I get my excess verdict. But it's not against one of those insurance companies you just named. It's someone who may be hanging their insured out to dry. What, what happens after that? How do you mit- turn that judgment into an actual recovery from your client?
1: Starts before the judgment, long before the judgment. Um, what I do and what I have been taught to do and what I would recommend you do, and again, uh, I'm happy to share all of my briefs and evidence or evidence, all of my uh, demands and case law and everything else, but it's essentially this. Once they've, you know, given up the opportunity to settle the case for the policy, you need to make a true value of the case demand. So for instance, the case I was talking about earlier that has a, it's a rear ender with a cervical fusion, $100,000 policy. They wouldn't pay me the policy. They They offered me 68 or 65 okay, I made a $1.2 million demand because that's what cervical fusions go for in and around Chicago. And I have all the, the jury verdict reporters to back it up. So that is now the demand. And what I do in that demand is I address that demand to the defense lawyer, to every money decision maker at the insurance company. So the the title, and this is what I've been taught to do, the title of the email, the two part of the email says, Mr. Defense Lawyer, Attorney for Defendant, and Ms. Smith, Claim Specialist for Insurance Company, and Mr. Johnson, Defendant, and all, de- all money decision makers in this matter, as you know, demand. And at the very end of the demand, I make my money demand, my time limit, and then I say, please forward this demand immediately to the defendant and advise him of his right to independent counsel because you have a conflict of interest. So if you are in the opposite situation, right, you cause a crash and your insurance company is screwing around, you have a right to independent counsel outside of the insurance company. So what we want to do is create, not even necessarily create, but bring to light the conflict inherent between a defense lawyer who has to work for both the insurance company and the insured, because those two people are not on the same page. The insurance company is not always doing what's best for their insured. They're doing what's best for their bottom line. And that's conflict. And if you can expose and create that conflict, then you have the defendant himself shouting from the mountaintops to his insurance company. What are you doing? Settle this case. I don't want to lose my house. I mean, as an aside, one of the things I love to do in defendant depositions and any defense lawyer who's listening to this, just here's, you know, here's your, uh, Uh, Warning of what I'm gonna do in a defendant debt, I like to turn right to the defendant and say, did you know we made a policy limits demand in this case for $100,000? Did you know you have an insurance policy that's $100,000? Did you know, have you ever seen our demand? No, you haven't. Did you know that if you told your insurance company to settle this case right now for the policy, we'd leave and you'd never see me again? Did you know that? What do you think of that? And defense lawyers obviously are pissed and they're throwing a fit, but now you have a defendant who realizes, oh, I have an out, I have a way out of this, I have a way out of the risk. So you want them to be aware of that. The other thing that you really, really want is for them to actually have independent counsel. But say they don't, say we get through the ver- through verdict and you're at the end of the trial. <clears throat> you have to protect the verdict You get past post-trial motions, verdict's protected. Now you have this excess verdict. You have to get the defendant to assign his bad faith claim, because it is the defendant driver, the defendant uh, insured, who has a right now to sue his insurance company for bad faith. So the defendant now gets to sue his insurance company for bad faith and say, you hung me out to dry, you screwed me, we had a contract, you breached it, you're on the hook. What you want is for that defendant to say, I don't want to litigate that, I don't want to spend the money, Um, you do it for me. Mr. Plaintiff and Plaintiff's Attorney or Miss Plaintiff and Plaintiff's Attorney. You do it for me. Um, And as in exchange for that, you will agree not to come after me personally for that excess. And that's a simple exchange. You say to the guy, look, assign us the claim and we won't come after you personally. The hard part is being able to speak to him because that person is still represented by the insurance company. So again, this goes back to what I said in the beginning be friendly and friends to the defense lawyers because they are the ones who are going to help you get assignment. They're the ones who are going to help you get this process accomplished. It's okay to be a zealous advocate. It's okay to be chomping at the bit to win and be aggressive and everything else. Like I'm a pit bull. I'm very aggressive. Sometimes I come off as a jerk. I don't mean to, but I've learned the longer I've done this that if you can befriend more people, and you can get more people on your side. You're going to get into these situations where assignment is easier, where settling cases beyond the policy is possible. Um, you know, and then things start to fall away, right? Like I don't look at cases anymore, um, especially in the last year, in terms of like what are the policy limits? There are no limits. If the insurance company screws it up, there's no limits. They don't exist. So, it just it starts well before you get the verdict, but after getting the verdict, you have to get assignment.
0: So, John, you know, I, we're going to wrap up here in a minute, but I want to kind of give you the last word on this topic because, I mean, you, you've got a lot of experience here. Um, I think you've put out some great information uh, and very usable tips for people, you know, when dealing with... You know this this very common situation. Uh, any last words on the matter? If you want to learn how to do this, uh, call me. My cell phone
1: number is eight one six eight nine six five seven four nine. I'll talk your ear off about this all day long. Um, there's a great book about this called Running with the Bulls that I referenced, I think in every podcast episode that we've had, I think I referenced that book. That's where I learned a lot of this stuff. I learned it at conferences and stuff like that too. But it's it's very very straightforward and very simple. Make your demand hold your ground, make your, you know, keep them time limited. Don't give extensions and don't be afraid to, to push it all the way to trial and try the case. Um, you know, you and I were talking off the air and with these you know better insurance companies, the, the bigger and better insurance companies, I don't know if they're better, but they're bigger versus the substandards. There are opportunities to obtain excess verdicts that get paid and uh, settle cases beyond the policy. Like I did here. Um, you know a hundred thousand dollar policy we settled it for 302 a week before trial there's opportunities when you're dealing with a, a large institution but when you're dealing with the general or whatever other you know 11 pm to 3 a.m insurance company that advertises in your area they're not they're they're carrying twenty five thousand dollar policies as a state minimum in illinois they're not going to want to pay that i've had so many phone calls on cases that are smaller cases smaller auto cases that have 50, 60, 70 grand in bills on a 25 policy and the adjuster for American Alliance is saying, can I do 225? No, you can do 70 uh, at trial or you can do 25 now pick and then they don't pay it. You, But the hard part is you have to give them the opportunity to settle it. And so there's, there's risk inherent in that because you may have a great case that has huge damages and great specials and, you're ready to go. Great liability. I just had one of those. I mean, I had, it was like a $45,000 ER bill and I barely got a word out of my mouth before they gave me the policy. So it just, you got to find the opportunities, the chinks in the armor, the adjusters that don't know what they're doing that screw up and take advantage of it to the benefit of your clients, because this is, it's a developing area of law. In my opinion, in Illinois, it is going to become very common as it is in California so I would study what's going on in California if you want to start trying to implement this here. Um, and just keep in mind, though, uh, Section 155 of the insurance code is not as strong or powerful as it is in other states. Uh, the bad faith law is much more powerful in other states, but it's, it's getting better. So, nothing
0: to do with the fact that State Farm and Allstate are headquartered here. No, it has nothing to do with the, that.
1: They, you know Shoot, they bought one of the Supreme Court justices, didn't they, Didn't State Farm? So I'm sure that had nothing to do with any of that. Um, but like I said, it's developing, it's, uh, you know, going to continue to happen. Look at your docket, identify cases that have big damages that you can push. And now actually is a really good time because we're doing this in November. Um, it's the end of the year. There's a pot of money left over because they've set reserves the beginning of the year. They set reserves for all their cases in January, February, March, Q1. Now we're in Q4 and all the money's left over. So start making your demands now, get them out the door and make demands to to the insurance companies for fair value. You don't need to make uh, demands for policies anymore. You've got a hundred thousand dollar, you know, case on a $25,000 policy, make a hundred thousand dollar demand, right? Show them that they have a risk of an excess because then you can more clearly illustrate the bad faith when you have to, start creating exhibits for the bad faith case and everything else
0: i think you're absolutely correct and that mindset is absolutely the one that we need to be having collectively when dealing with these insurance companies and also you know if it goes sideways you have to be able to try the case yeah you got to identify the ones that you think you're going to get that excess result maybe a substantial one and just really dig your heels in. And I think that's when you end up with results like the one that we're just talking about, where you're getting three times the policy limits. So and I, not, I think, not to beat a dead horse, right? But
1: there are a lot of lawyers and a lot of firms that do not want to try cases. And I understand that. It's expensive, it's exhausting, um, and it's hard, and it's scary. Uh, and I get it, right? It's easier sometimes just to take short money. It's easier to take a settlement. But if you've got one of these cases co-counsel with somebody that wants to try it and give them a portion of your fee because it's better for your client and you'll make more money and you'll make up the difference and it'll be substantially better for every other plaintiff and every other plaintiff's lawyer in the state because it's a rising tide. It lifts all boats.
0: On that note, uh, we're going to wrap it up for today. But before we go, we're going to give our 30-second trial tip. One thing we can do to make our cases stronger and our trials better. John, what's yours for this week? 30-second trial tip is... Embrace technology, it's here to stay. Learn to use Zoom.
1: Uh, I was on a Zoom deposition this morning where uh, the court reporter struggled with the technology. And it just highlights how uh, quickly we've had to get up to speed. But if you can use this technology, I mean, we're recording this on Zoom, I'm showing you documents through a screen share if I need to, whatever else. If you can get good at using this, You can start seamlessly taking depositions of experts all over the country, and now you're not having to spend money to fly your experts all over. Now you're hopping into court for five minutes instead of an hour and a half in the car each way, things like that. You're going to start saving yourself a lot of time and energy, and you're going to get really, really, really good at it to the point where it's going to be as easy as in-person stuff. So just learn to love it because it's not going away.
0: That's a great point, John. I'm certainly learning to love the Zoom, uh, you know, not only out of necessity because of its utility. It really is a time saver and a cost saver, 100%. Yeah. Uh, mine for this week is when you're doing your closing, know where the line is and know when to stop. Um, you know, it's different in different jurisdictions. If you're trying a case somewhere that's, you know, outside of where you normally try the case, talk to someone, talk to someone local, talk to someone who knows the rules, who knows the judiciary you know, and see what the limits are. Uh, I know that I've worked with uh, trial consultants from all over the country and you would not believe some of the things that they wanted me to say in front of a jury. Um, And I I just, I couldn't do it. I, I had to double check myself and just be like, is this, is this really the argument that we want to be making? And Uh, you know, you have to understand that things are very different all over the place. Um, And the reason I bring this up is we have a case that's up on appeal and oral oral arguments were last month, and it had to do with uh, statements made during the defendant's closing. Um, By our count, there were four highly prejudicial statements in a 40-minute closing um, that referenced uh, an individual nurse in a medical malpractice case who was a a non-party but was the primary person involved in the incident that we alleged the malpractice occurred within. And uh, you, the judges, uh, the justices were all over it. Um, we don't have the ruling yet, uh, but the fact that, you know, was this was a not guilty verdict for us and, you know, this might get overturned on appeal, you know, don't ruin days of putting on your evidence by taking your argument to places where it isn't supposed to go.
1: Absolutely. And a lot of the things you're talking about with uh, closing argument can be handled with what you've talked about as other trial tips, motions and lemonade. You can make sure that you're shorn up with motions and lemonade. Every trial I try, I have a motion eliminate that says the defendant is not allowed to say, What is this, the lottery? They're coming in here looking like it's the lottery. Do you know why? Because I lost a trial in 2018 because the defendant got up in front of the jury and said, A million dollars? What do they think this is? The lottery? And the jury all went, Oh, yeah, yeah, no, that's a good point. And we lost and we took it up on appeal and there we go. Right. But it's, it's that kind of stuff that you need
0: to be able to be aware of yourself, but you also need to be listening for when the defendants do it. It's an excellent point about taking those things out in motion as an eliminate. It's absolutely something you should be doing uh, because the case law is all out there. You know, the case law sets what the limits are in closing in particular. You know the judges are always you know at the edge of their bench. You know for someone to do something improper because you know attorneys have you know they feel the pressure to put on the show. You know they they want to be this is the kind of their time to shine and really make their case and argue on behalf of their client. And sometimes it goes too far. So you know make sure you know what you're doing. Make sure you know the parameters and stay within them. It's just not worth it. So uh, with that. I um, want to thank John for sharing his experience with us, you know, sharing some great tips on how to get, you know, access uh, and, you know, unlock policies with bad faith. Uh, remember, you can follow us and send us comments, questions and episode ideas or just troll us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at On Trial Podcast. Please also rate and leave us your feedback on iTunes where we download your podcast. Until next time, we'll see you on trial.